With Alan Wake 2 right around the corner, I, Suggestive Gaming, figured it would be a great time to cover not only the story of the first game, 2010's Alan Wake, but also the other main title in developer Remedy's connected universe, 2019's Control, as well as both games' various DLCs, including the 2012 standalone spin-off, Alan Wake's American Nightmare. However, I will not be covering Remedy's 2016 title, Quantum Break. While there are some references and Easter eggs throughout the various games that could tie its story to the Remedy-connected universe, creative director Sam Lake has confirmed that Quantum Break is not in the same universe as Alan Wake and Control. As such, I also won't be covering a hidden teaser included in Quantum Break entitled Alan Wake's Return, but I will link it in the description, so feel free to check that out. Another thing to note is that last year, Remedy announced remakes of the first two Max Payne games, which could potentially bring the story of Max Payne into the Remedy-connected universe. As such, I won't go over the original two Max Payne titles, nor the third, which Remedy had no part in creating, in this video. Keep an eye out, though, because I will be covering the story of the original trilogy in an upcoming video of its own. Because this video wound up being a bit longer than I expected, I've enlisted the help of my close personal friend and podcast co-host, Papa Post, to help. Post and I both bought and loved Alan Wake day one back in 2010, so I can't think of a better person to share a voiceover with. Also, cheap plug time, make sure you check out and subscribe to our podcast Bucket Bites, link in the description. Now, without further ado, this is what you need to know about Alan Wake and Control. Our story begins in the year 1970 in the rural town of Bright Falls, Washington. There, a poet named Thomas Zane stays with his girlfriend, Barbara Yeager. While the pair stay on the town's Cauldron Lake, Barbara goes for a swim, but mysteriously drowns. Zane's assistant, Emil Hartman, then discovers that the lake has supernatural powers and can somehow turn fiction into reality. Hartman convinces Zane to use this power to write Barbara back into existence, and he does so. Things don't go quite according to plan, however, as Barbara Yeager does return, but is inhabited by a malevolent dark presence. After determining that this Barbara wasn't the one he loved, Thomas Zane is forced to cut out her heart, discovering an empty hole of darkness inside of her. Zane then used the power of the lake to rewrite reality once again but this time he planned things better. Zane writes himself and Jaeger out of existence, leaving a contingency that will leave his belongings in a shoebox, which he entrusts with a woman named Cynthia Weaver. A volcanic eruption then occurs under the lake, engulfing the island, Diver's Isle, that Thomas and Barbara inhabited. Six years later, a rock band called The Old Gods of Asgard rehearse a performance on two of the members, Odin and Tor Anderson's, farm. During their rehearsal, the group consumes some homemade moonshine created from the waters of Cauldron Lake, attracting the Dark Presence to return and attack the Anderson farm. A heavy storm then rolls in. 
This event attracts the attention of the Federal Bureau of Control, a secret United States government organization that investigates phenomena that are paranatural or defy the laws of physics or reality. This event is then referred to by the FBC as an Altered World Event, or AWE, and the Anderson brothers are named persons of interest and later interviewed by the organization. In August of 2002, in the town of Ordinary, Maine, we find 11-year-old Jessie Faden and her 10-year-old brother Dylan. The pair find an old slide projector in a landfill, but when they use it, they discover that the slide creates doorways to other dimensions. While bad things are able to come through these doorways, an ethereal being comes through one of them and telepathically links with Jessie. She comes to know this entity as Polaris. Through this event, every adult, including Jesse and Dylan's parents, vanish. With Polaris's help, Jesse and Dylan are able to turn off the projector, sealing the dimensional portals and causing the bad things that came through them to disappear. As a precaution, Jesse also burns six of the seven slides the pair found, leaving only the one leading to Polaris's dimension behind. These events draw the attention of the FBC, who send a team to investigate. They meet with Jesse and Dylan, who lead them to the projector. The FBC attempt to take both of the children into custody, but Jesse escapes, leaving her brother behind, who is captured and taken away by the Bureau. In August of 2010, on a lake, an unknown diver pulls a body bag out of the water, bringing it ashore. After the diver rows his boat away, however, the corpse that was inside the bag mysteriously vanishes. We then find a reporter named Jake Fisher driving into Bright Falls, Washington, while talking to his colleague Hal on his cell phone. The pair discussed their boss, Riley, who sent Jake to the town to interview a psychiatrist named Dr. Emil Hartman about his book, The Creator's Dilemma. Hal tells Jake that he talked to Jake's wife, Libby, but is running out of excuses for Jake's absence. Jake reaches the Oh Dear Diner inside the town and looks over his notes on Dr. Hartman. Jake meets the diner's waitress, Rose Marigold, who happens to be a super fan of best-selling author Alan Wake. Shortly after their conversation, Rose brings Jake food he didn't order, along with a birthday cake. A confused Jake then listens to the whole diner sing him a birthday wish. Jake heads towards the nearby Mountain Air Motel, but during his drive, he gets a call from Libby. As he contemplates answering the call, Jake is distracted and doesn't see a deer jump out into the road. Jake hits the deer, causing him to slam his head hard on the steering wheel. Jake gets out of the car with a flashlight and shines it on the deer, which lets out a painful scream. When Jake's flashlight fails, the deer runs back off into the woods. Jake then continues on, spotting a sign for the town's 68th annual Deerfest Festival. Jake reaches the motel, meeting its proprietor Sam Smith and his young son Daniel. Jake receives the key to his room, and Sam shows him to his cabin. Jake immediately crashes on his bed, only waking once dawn arrives. 
Jake drives back to the diner where Rose is watching an interview with Alan Wake about the latest and final book in his Alex Casey series of novels, The Sudden Stop. There, Jake meets with an old acquaintance named Ellen Adams, who works for the local newspaper, The Bright Falls Record. The pair make small talk about Libby and Jake's business before Ellen receives a message on her phone and has to leave for work. Jake then goes to Dr. Hartman's office at his clinic at the Cauldron Lake Lodge and prepares for his interview with the psychiatrist. Hartman meets him, but requests that Jake not record their conversation on video and to instead write it down. The interview begins, and Hartman expresses his work of helping artists escape their delusions of being trapped in realities of their own devising. Jake's gaze then gets trapped in an image of a road on Dr. Hartman's wall, and he begins to have flashes of strange visions. When Jake snaps out of it, he finds the interview to be over, and Dr. Hartman says his farewells. Jake tries to shake off this episode, returning to his car, where he drives off and calls Hal. Hal doesn't answer, so Jake leaves a message trying to tell him what happened, and he looks at his notepad, realizing he made several notes and drawings that he doesn't recall. He looks outside the car and sees a man carrying a deer's head walking along the road. The next morning, Jake finds himself laying on the ground in the woods, hands covered in some kind of red mud, unaware of how he got there. He sees Daniel watching him, but the boy runs off. Jake stands to see that he's nearby his cabin. Jake then goes to the newspaper office to find Ellen, and once he arrives, he asks to speak with her in private. He then shows her his notes and tells her what happened to him that morning. Ellen tells him that Bright Falls can get into people's heads, and when he leaves, Jake hugs her goodbye. She tells him that he should get home and clear his head, but he states that he intended to do that by coming to Bright Falls. Ellen simply responds by telling him that she thinks he should leave. At the motel, Sam and Daniel hear a light bulb break, and Sam sends Daniel off. Sam then replaces the bulbs in a floodlight, which have been smashed, seemingly multiple times before as well. Sam then returns to the reception area, where Daniel helps him put on a hunting jacket. Sam then grabs a shotgun and goes out into the woods as Daniel watches. Sam doesn't see anything in the woods, so he fires a warning shot before reloading. Sam then hears the sound of something moving and steps back, slipping on the shell that ejected from his gun. Sam slams against the ground, unable to get back up. He is then left to simply laugh as something drags him away. Meanwhile, Jake stops at a local pharmacy to get a prescription, but is told they will have to send out for it, which could take six days to arrive. Jake returns to the diner, seeing a woman throwing rocks at a lamppost outside. A police officer tries to stop her, but she attacks him, and Jake watches the woman get placed under arrest as she bites the arresting officer. In the diner, Rose watches Alan Wake on TV, assaulting the media that are hounding him. Jake tells Rose about the commotion in the parking lot, but as they walk to the window, the pair see that the lot is empty. As Rose walks away, however, the officer pulls up next to the diner, and the officer leaves the vehicle. As Jake looks over, he recognizes the woman's sporadic movements from his vision inside of Hartman's office. 
The officer, Deputy Mulligan, then enters the diner and Rose helps tend to his bite wound. Jake watches the TV where an advertisement for Deerfest plays and he begins to see more flashes of visions. When Jake comes to this time, he finds himself inside of the body bag that was previously seen dragged ashore. Jake emerges from the bag and sees the light from the rowboat on the lake. Jake then rushes away into the woods again, having no clue how he arrived there. Jake finds his way back to the road and finds his car veered off of it with the trunk open. Jake drives off, getting a call from Hal, who asks him how it's going. Jake tells him everything is fine, and Hal asks if Jake was able to get a copy of The Creator's Dilemma signed by Dr. Hartman for their boss, Riley, and Jake realizes that he had completely forgotten. Jake goes back to the Cauldron Lake Lodge and gets the book signed by Hartman. Jake then asks the doctor to talk to him off the record, and he tells him about his blackouts, as well as the strange places he wakes up after them. Hartman implores Jake to stay at the lodge as he takes out a pen light to look into his eyes. Jake suddenly has a violent reaction to the light, and when Hartman shines it upon him again, Jake runs out and returns to his motel cabin. There, Jake sets up his camera to film him as he duct tapes himself to the refrigerator and passes out. In the morning, Jake finds himself freed from his makeshift restraints and watches the tape to see what he did during his blackout. On the recording, Jake rips his hands free of the duct tape and destroys everything in the cabin, violently thrashing as he screams out in a demonic yell. Jake frantically tries to clean his room, but Deputy Mulligan arrives and knocks on his door. Jake answers, and Mulligan asks if he's seen Sam recently, as he's gone missing. Mulligan enters the cabin and sees its current state of disarray. Jake lies to him, stating that he left the door open so a wild animal must have burst in. Mulligan then notices signs that a 14-point trophy buck must have done it, and leaves the cabin. Jake gets back to his car and again drives to the newspaper office. He meets Ellen and tells her to get in his car and drive. She does so, but Jake doesn't tell her exactly where to go. She asks him where they are going, and he just tells her to get him out of Bright Falls. She continues to question him, and he tells her that he isn't in control. She asks him what that means, but he doesn't respond. She then shouts his name, and he turns towards her, staring blankly. Suddenly, Jake finds himself driving the car alone, with the radio turned up. He looks over to the passenger seat and sees Ellen's shoe with blood on it. He then sees a sign welcoming him to Bright Falls, and he slams on the brakes to turn around. This sudden stop causes him to slam his head into the steering wheel, and he sees the Deerfest sign once again. He then sits in his stationary car, although the reflection in the windshield makes it appear as if he's again moving through the trees. Sometime later, Jake leaves his car behind, and the police strike a flare to investigate. We'll be back after a quick break. Ever thought modern video games should be more interesting? At the Gaming Blender, we take randomized genres, mechanics, and make a new game every episode. I've added permadeath. We have a survival game of a hardcore simulation, which could be House Flipper, and with the permadeath of XCOM. 
then that owl has to be an action adventure. Yes. Oh dear. Yes. And sometimes it doesn't quite work. And you you have a construction off over the course of the of the narrative. A construction off. The <laughs> way the way we can do this is that we ditch your idea entirely. Entirely. Check out the Gaming Blender on all your favourite podcast platforms now. We then find ourselves inside of a dream, that of author Alan Wake. Inside the dream, Alan is racing towards a lighthouse in his car, but accidentally runs over a hitchhiker on his way. However, his body disappears, and Alan is soon chased by a specter of him as the ghostly figure taunts Alan for playing God as a writer. Alan finds a cabin where he meets a writer named Clay Stewart. Alan leaves him behind and enters the cabin, where a poster of Tom the Poet, a man in a diving suit, bursts into light to help him escape, teaching Alan to use light to weaken the shadowy figures that are chasing him. Alan then reaches the lighthouse, but the power goes out, and Alan finally awakens from his nightmare. Alan wakes on a ferry alongside his wife, Alice, just as it begins to pull into Bright Falls, Washington, where Alan, on the advice of his agent, Barry Wheeler, is taking a retreat to hopefully clear his mind after a two-year stint of writer's block. On the ferry, Alan meets local radio host Pat Maine, politely asking him for an interview, which Alan declines. After the couple reach the town, Alan stops at the town's diner to retrieve the keys to the cabin they're staying at from its landlord, Carl Stuckey. Inside the diner, Alan meets several of the town's locals, including waitress and superfan Rose Marigold, a park ranger named Rusty, and two elderly brothers named Odin and Tor Anderson, who used to be members of the rock group called the Old Gods of Asgard. Alan looks near the restrooms for Stucky, meeting an old woman named Cynthia Weaver on the way, who carries a lantern and is seemingly obsessed with the dark. Instead of finding Stucky, Alan is met by a woman dressed in all black, with a veil covering her face. She states that Mr. Stucky couldn't make it, as he had fallen ill. The woman then hands Alan the key to the cabin on the lake, as well as instructions on how to get there. She then states that she'll check in with Alan later to see how he's settling in, and also to meet his wife. Alan then returns to Alice in the car, and as they drive off, they just miss Carl Stuckey, who bursts out of the diner, attempting to flag them down to give them their keys. Alan and Alice follow the directions and reach the cabin on the lake. Alan gets inside the cabin and figures out how to turn the power on so Alice, who has a fear of the dark, can enter. After Alan starts the generator, the pair settle in. Alan then checks on Alice to find that she has a surprise for him, a typewriter in the study. Alice hoped that the change of scenery would help him start writing, but a pressured Alan lashes out at the gesture. Alice suggests that Alan talk to a local psychiatrist, Dr. Emil Hartman, who specializes in helping artists. As Alan argues, the lights in the cabin go out, startling Alice as a figure briefly appears between them. Alan leaves her as the lights suddenly come back on, and he storms out of the cabin in anger. As he walks away from the cabin, however, the lights inside go off once again, and Alice 
lets out a scream. Alan rushes back as a group of birds attack him. He reaches the cabin, but Alice's screams suddenly stop as he hears a splash. On the deck, Alan spots Alice sinking into the waters of the lake, and he dives in after her. Strangely, Alan hears a voice tell him to wake up, and he finds himself inside of his car, crashed off the side of the road. Alan emerges from the wreckage and searches for help, soon finding pages of a manuscript entitled Departure, the name of the novel he had yet to write. While Alan Wake is named as the author, he has no recollection of writing it. In the scene he finds, the hero is attacked by an axe murderer in the woods at night. Alan soon reaches a lumber yard where he finds Carl Stuckey. However, when the man turns, Alan notices that he is contorting, talking strangely and curiously has an aura of darkness surrounding him. Stuckey attacks, and Alan is forced to run from him. Alan finds a flashlight and a revolver, and is then attacked by more shadowy figures, called the Taken. Alan uses the light to weaken them, then shoots them to defeat them, as well as Stuckey, noticing that no bodies are ever left behind. Alan reaches a gas station that has its lights on, and notices a sign outside which helps him realize that he had somehow lost a week's worth of time. Inside the station, he sees a TV set with himself on it, in the cabin's study, rambling about saving Alice with his writings as he sits by the typewriter. Alan uses the gas station's telephone to call the police, and Sheriff Sarah Breaker arrives shortly after. Alan tells her his wife went missing from the cabin on Cauldron Lake, but the confused sheriff states that the island on Cauldron Lake has been gone since a big eruption occurred in the 1970s. Sheriff Breaker asks Alan if he's seen Stucky, but he lies and states that he hasn't. She then drives him to Cauldron Lake, where, sure enough, there is no island or cabin. We then see a flashback of Alan and Alice three years prior, where the couple are working on Alan's new book, The Sudden Stop. When the lights go out and Alice begins to panic, Alan sets up some candles. He then tells her about his childhood, where he had his own fear of monsters in the dark. To pacify him, Alan's mother gave him an old light switch she called the clicker, telling him to flip the switch whenever he was afraid, and a magic light would scare the monsters away. Alan then gives Alice the clicker, and the pair share a kiss. Back in the present, Alan has his wounds from the car crash patched up, and Sarah asks him about how he got there. Suddenly, Alan gets a phone call on his cell phone from an unknown caller, and when he answers, he hears Alice's voice, begging for help. A man then speaks on the other end, telling him not to speak to the law, and if he wants to see his wife again, he'll meet at nearby Elderwood National Park. As Alan finds Alice's driver's license, left by the kidnapper as proof of her capture, he receives a call from his panicking agent, Barry Wheeler, who tells Alan that he's just arrived in Bright Falls after growing worried about not being able to reach him or Alice in the past week. Alan tells Barry to get him at the sheriff's office, then heads back inside, where he sees another video of himself on a television. Also inside the station is the doctor Alice had wanted Alan to see, Dr. Hartman, who is speaking to Sarah about the two elderly rockers who Alan had seen at the diner, Odin and Tor. 
who apparently had escaped from his institution at the Cauldron Lake Lodge. As Alan goes to leave, Sarah asks him where he's going to stay, and he agrees to go to the Elderwood cabins. Dr. Hartman then reveals that he was the one who asked Alice to come to Bright Falls so that he can work with Alan, who proceeds to angrily punch the doctor in the face for being the catalyst for his current situation. Just then, Barry arrives and retrieves his client, and the pair leave the station after Dr. Hartman expresses his desire not to press charges. Alan tells Barry everything, and while he doesn't believe the whole story, he understands the significance of Alice's kidnapping and agrees to help. The two rent a cabin from Rusty's and head there to discuss the situation. Barry wants to go to the police, but Alan refuses, fearing for Alice's safety. Alan then goes alone towards the meeting place the kidnapper told him about, known as Lover's Peak. On his way, the trees suddenly begin to fall and he hears Rusty scream out. Alan returns to the visitor center to find it in a state of destruction with a bloody Rusty inside. Rusty states that he found a page of the manuscript and after he read it, what was on the page came true. Alan tries to get the lights turned back on, but the circuit breaker was destroyed and Alan is attacked by more Taken before finding that Rusty had vanished completely. Alan reaches Lover's Peak and is ambushed by several Taken. Suddenly, the man Alan is there to meet arrives and surprisingly comes to his aid, firing a flare gun to scare the beings of darkness off. Alan recognizes the man from the ferry that brought him into Bright Falls, but is forced to hold off more Taken. After the pair are safe, the kidnapper demands the entire manuscript as ransom for Alice, causing Alan to punch him off the viewing platform. The pair are separated, and the kidnapper calls to give Alan two days to finish the manuscript and meet him at the Bright Falls coal mine. Alan gets back to the cabin to reunite with Barry, finding it under attack by the birds. After fighting them off with light, the pair work out their next course of action. Barry heads into town to ask about anybody fitting the kidnapper's description, while Alan stays at the cabin to write a fake manuscript. Even though it's fake, something still stops Alan from writing. While he's in town, Barry gets a call from Rose, the waitress of the diner, telling him that she found Alan's pages, inviting Barry and Alan to come retrieve them at the trailer park. Barry rushes off to retrieve Alan, and in her trailer, Rose is standing next to the woman in black, the one who gave Alan the keys to the cabin on the lake, who simply calls her a good girl. As Barry and Alan reach the trailer park, Alan gets a call from Sheriff Breaker, who tells him someone from the FBI, Agent Nightingale, has arrived in town and wishes to see him. Alan and Barry speak with the park's manager, Randolph, who tells them that the local Native Americans thought Cauldron Lake to be a gateway to the underworld. Barry explains that he learned that the island that once existed on the lake was owned by a famous poet named Thomas Zane, although his writings are now unlocatable. Zane was a diver, so the island was called Diver's Isle, until a volcano under the lake erupted in 1970, taking the island underwater and Zane with it. Barry and Alan meet Rose at her trailer, and she invites them in for coffee. Alan asks for the pages, but she reveals that she doesn't have them. Barry and Alan then fall unconscious from a drug in the coffee. 
In his dream, Alan sees a bright light speak to him, telling him that it is coming for him, hiding in his Barbara's skin. After seeing the woman in black again, the voice implores Alan to turn the light on before he awakens, where the woman in black tells him to get back to work. Alan finds himself inside Rose's trailer, where another video of him is playing on her TV. In this video, Alan states that the woman in black, who he's come to know as Barbara Jagger, has been working as his editor, having previously worked for Thomas Zane. Alan finds Barry still passed out, with Rose in a catatonic state. He leaves the trailer to find the police arriving at the scene. FBI agent Nightingale bursts from one of the cars, holding Alan at gunpoint and placing him under arrest. Alan runs off, narrowly escaping gunfire from Nightingale and the other police. Alan then runs through the woods, avoiding detection as he tries to make his way to the coal mine to make his second meeting with the kidnapper. On his way, Alan goes through the local radio station, and the night host, Pat Main, mentions that he just walked into the studio. This tips off the police, who arrive at the radio station within moments. When Nightingale again gets a bit too trigger-happy and fires off a shot, Alan uses the distraction to escape into the woods once more. Continuing towards the coal mine, Alan gets a call from Alice, but something about her seems wrong. She states that when she looks at Alan, it isn't him, but rather something else looking out from behind his eyes. Nonetheless, she encourages him to continue cooperating to help her. Alan then fights through more Taken and darkness-possessed objects before he finds a car and is able to travel to the coal mine. After arriving at the coal mine early, Alan waits for the kidnapper to arrive. After several hours, however, the man never shows up. Alan then receives a call from the kidnapper, telling him there's been a change of plans, and to meet him at Mirror Peak, a mountain to the north. Alan reluctantly makes his way, watching another video of himself where he talks about finding Thomas Zane's writings inside the cabin. Zane, as it turned out, was a poet, and he wrote of muses and creators who could summon fabulous things from a magic lake, using its power to shape the world, of a realm of gods and dreams, and demons, dark things that wait for a chance to slip through, wearing the flesh of men as disguise. Zane had then written about his girlfriend being taken over by a dark presence, which made him grow scared of the lake and the darkness that it contained. After more encounters with Taken, Alan spots Cauldron Lake in the distance, with a light where the cabin had once been. Alan then reaches the Mirror Peak lookout point, where he finds the kidnapper, Ben Mott, speaking with a lady admitting to her that he had never actually had Alice, but his boss had only been using the threat to get Alan to write for them. The Dark Presence then appears as a swirling tornado, taking Mott and killing him. Alan is then thrown into the waters below, where he sees a vision of a man in a diving suit, before he is pulled out by an unknown figure. Alan then finds himself before Dr. E. Mill Hartman, who claims that Alan is a patient at his clinic at the Cauldron Lake Lodge, and has been for a while after the death of his wife triggered a mental illness. 
While Alan doesn't believe Hartman, the doctor gives him a tour of the clinic while explaining that Alice had drowned, which Alan couldn't accept, sending him into a paranoid delusion of thinking that his writings are affecting the reality through a war between light and darkness. Alan goes along with Hartman's narrative, but resists the notions inside his own mind. As Alan and Hartman reach Odin and Tor, a storm rolls in and the power begins to act up. Hartman leaves to go check on it, and Odin and Tor begin to refer to Alan by Thomas Zane's name. The brothers tell Alan to go to their farm, which they call Valhalla. Alan tries to humor Hartman by sitting at a typewriter to write, but a commotion breaks out downstairs. Hartman goes to check on the noise, and Alan follows to find that the Anderson brothers have knocked out one of the orderlies, allowing Alan to take her keys. Alan makes his way to Hartman's office to retrieve his manuscript pages, finding Barry locked up in a closet along the way. Alan retrieves the pages just as Hartman arrives. Alan pulls a pistol on Hartman and tells Barry to go find a car. Suddenly, the dark presence invades the room, and Alan leaves the room before hearing Hartman scream. Alan is then forced to escape the lodge as the darkness possesses every object and inhabitant. Outside, Alan is forced to find his way through a hedge maze to reach Barry. When the pair reunite, they speed off in a car and head towards the Anderson farm. On the ride, Alan explains that the kidnapper never had Alice, and that she's trapped in the darkness at the bottom of the lake. Alan hopes that the Anderson brothers had written down what they knew about what's going on, but suddenly, rocks fall from a nearby cliff, and their car is run off the road. Barry and Alan are separated by the crash, but both are able to safely escape from the wreckage to make their way to the Anderson farm. On his way, Alan sees another vision of the man in the diving suit in a burst of light, who reveals that it was he who had been placing Alan's manuscript pages for him to find, hoping to prepare him for the events to come. Alan reaches a cabin on his way, where he finds a man named Walter, who has been searching for the Andersons' moonshine before his friend Danny became taken and attacked him. Walter dies, and Alan defeats Danny. Alan also sees another video of himself, where he states that he's writing himself into the story as the protagonist, so that he can defeat the darkness and save Alice, with Thomas Zane's help. Alan finds Barry on the farm, on the Anderson Brothers stage. Hordes of Taken swarm, but Barry inadvertently activates the stage lights and pyrotechnics. Alan then fights off the Taken in a massive battle on the stage, as the old gods of Asgard's music blares from the amplifiers. After the battle, Alan and Barry get into the barn and find their way through to reach the Andersons' house. After restoring the power, the pair hear a record playing. The song playing, one of the old gods of Asgard's, speaks of finding a Lady of the Light in order to retrieve the witch's cabin key. Alan realizes this lady must be Cynthia Weaver, the woman in the diner who always carried the lantern. The pair decide to wait until morning to look for her, and Barry whips out some of the old brother's moonshine to help pass the time. Unbeknownst to Alan, the moonshine contains water from Cauldron Lake, and consuming it not only gets him very intoxicated, but gives him a vision. In it, Alan finally sees what happened to him the night Alice went missing. 
After diving in the water, Alan was unable to find Alice. But when he climbed back onto the cabin's dock, he saw Barbara Yeager beckoning him, convincing him that Alice was still inside the cabin. The dark presence had touched Alan, used him as a puppet, and led him to the typewriter, where he was instructed to use its power to write Alice back into existence. He then spent the next week writing a nearly complete manuscript of a novel called Departure, while Jaeger acted as his editor. As a failsafe, Alan has written Thomas Zane into the story to provide him enough light to escape. Zane then arrived in his signature diving suit, bringing the light to set Alan free. Alan escaped to his car just before the Dark Presence returned to the cabin, sensing Zane. This led to the crash where Alan finally woke up. Alan then awakens from this vision to find himself again held at gunpoint by Agent Nightingale, who finally found him thanks to all the noise at the farm. Dr. Emil Hartman escapes the Cauldron Lake Lodge to find Nurse Sinclair being attacked by the taken Ben Mott. Mott, who had been working for Hartman in the fake kidnapping plot, is then scared away by the doctor's flashlight. With Sinclair now safe, Hartman retreats with her back inside the lodge. Hartman reveals to the nurse that he knows a bit about the Dark Presence, as well as its ability to possess. Mott reappears at the lodge, killing another patient named Rudolph Lane. Hartman and Sinclair continue to run from him, just as the police arrive. Deputies Mulligan and Thornton arrive and search the place, but cannot find Mott. Hartman uses himself as bait, and the taken man appears. Hartman throws a flare at him, weakening him enough so the deputies can shoot at him, finally killing the taken Ben Mott. Afterwards, Hartman walks off by himself, looking to the mountains and realizing his research must come to an end. He then calls an unknown party on his phone and states that he has reconsidered their offer. Hartman then realizes that he misses Thomas Zane. As Brightfall's annual Deerfest is about to begin, Alan finds himself inside of a jail cell alongside Barry within the sheriff's station. As he awakens from his sleep, Alan sees a vision of Cynthia Weaver speaking of a key that Zane entrusted her with keeping safe within the light. Nightingale visits Alan, stating that he read the manuscript and intends to use it as evidence of Wake's motives. Alan suddenly collapses, but Nightingale thinks it to be merely a trick. Sarah tells the agent to back off, believing him to either not be sober or on official business. Nightingale then pulls out his gun on Alan, but suddenly remembers the moment from what he read in the manuscript. He tries to pull out the pages to read them, but is swiftly pulled out of the room by one of the Dark Presence's whirlwinds as the lights in the station go out. Alan tells Sarah that the only way to fight the Presence is with light, and she rushes to the fuse box before turning them back on. Sarah then tells Alan that Cynthia lives in the old decommissioned power plant. She agrees to take Alan there, leaving Barry behind at the station with a list of phone numbers and instructions to call them to give them the code phrase Night Springs, the name of a TV show about paranormal events, which will inform them of something strange happening in the town. Sarah and Alan then leave the station to make their way to Town Hall to search for keys to a helicopter. The first person Barry calls is Frank Breaker, retired NYPD detective and Sarah's father. 
Frank receives the message and immediately begins to worry about his daughter, grabbing a shotgun and a flashlight before leaving his home and entering his truck. While driving, Frank calls an associate named Kirkland, informing him that there's currently a situation in Bright Falls. Kirkland unfortunately responds by telling Frank that they won't be able to send anybody in a timely manner. Sarah and Alan fight through several taken, as well as possessed objects, including the Deerfest float. They soon reach the town hall, where Alan finds the keys, but after he retrieves them, he and Sarah soon spot Barry running for his life outside. Barry is separated from the two by a darkness-possessed bus, but survives. Alan and Sarah later see a flare shoot out from behind the church, and they get inside after holding off more Taken. Outside the church, they find Barry, adorned with Christmas lights for protection. The three then reach the helicopter, but as Sarah gets in it, a horde of Taken attack. Alan holds them off, and as soon as they're ready, he gets in the helicopter himself, and the three embark towards the power plant. Frank Breaker arrives in Bright Falls and meets with the others Sarah had Barry call. Pat Main, Deputy Thornton, Deputy Mulligan, Deputy Grant, and Deputy James. The deputies tell Frank about the Taken and possessed objects that have started to appear, as well as their weakness to light. They also inform him that Sarah and Alan Wake have taken off in a helicopter towards Cynthia's place. Frank heads off alone towards the power plant, fighting Taken on his way. As Sarah goes to land the helicopter near the river, a flock of birds attack and get caught in the rotor. Alan is thrown clean, while Sarah tries to shake the birds to meet him at the plant with Barry. Alan crosses a yard of Transformers to enter the power plant, where he is met by Cynthia Weaver, bathed in a massive light. After Alan proves that he knows of her connection to Thomas Zane, Cynthia invites him inside the power plant and tells him that the key is in the well-lit room which is inside the nearby dam. While Cynthia states that she won't go outside at night, she does admit that she has a secret tunnel to the dam via an old water pipe. Alan cuts power to the transformer yard, then follows Cynthia to the tunnel. On their way to the well-lit room, Alan calls Barry, telling him to meet them at the dam. Suddenly, Alan hears a loud crash. Alan leaves to check on his friends, while Cynthia continues in the tunnel towards the dam. While Alan finds the wreckage of the helicopter, he finds no bodies. He continues on and meets up with Sarah and Barry, protecting them from some Taken. The now reunited trio make their way to the top of the dam. On their way, more powerful and fast Taken appear, but Alan is able to fight them off so they can reach an elevator to the dam. Alan soon gets separated from the group, and he is forced to escape the Dark Presence to make his way to the top of the dam alone. He is able to elude the strange force, reuniting with Sarah, Barry, and Cynthia as the four then enter the dam. Inside, they reach a vault, built by the army during World War II. Cynthia lets them inside, where they finally enter the well-lit room. Alan enters the room filled with light bulbs that Cynthia has been maintaining for decades and finds a box in the center. He approaches it to take the key left behind by Thomas Zane, a page. On this page is a story about Alan, seven years old, who suffered from nightmares. 
The page then details an old light switch his mother gave him, which she called the clicker, that would turn on a magical light to drive away the beasts. Under the page, Alan is shocked to find the clicker he remembered from his childhood, with Zane's writing reflecting his current state of finding it. While Alan is mesmerized to learn that Zane had written the clicker into existence inside of a story that he himself had written, he nonetheless takes the clicker knowing that it's his key to getting Alice and bringing an end to these events. Meanwhile, Frank Breaker arrives at the power plant to find it empty. Knowing of the secret tunnel to the dam, he takes a truck to go there. On his way, he spots the helicopter crashed and still aflame, giving him even more fear for the safety of his daughter. Suddenly, Frank is run off the road by a semi. After he crashes, the shadowy figure of Barbara Jagger appears outside of the driver's side window, telling him to stay away, as this is between her and the writer. Frank pulls out a flare to scare her off, then begins to fight more Taken, but soon finds himself overwhelmed. We then see another flashback from Alan's life, this time two years prior, where the writer awakens after a long alcohol bender. After treating his hangover, Alan listens to a voicemail from Barry, who tells him to watch his interview on The Harry Garrett Show, promoting his new book, The Sudden Stop. Alice arrives, and Alan begins to argue with her about the night before, but quickly comes to his senses when he realizes that the stress of the book tour is getting to him. Alan then promises that the two will take a vacation together as soon as things quiet down. Back in the present, Alan presses the clicker, and then tells the others that he's going back to Cauldron Lake to finish his manuscript on his own terms to make things right. While Sarah tries to go with him, Alan states that he has to do this alone. He hugs Barry goodbye and exits the well-lit room, with Cynthia closing the door behind him. Frank Breaker, now safe thanks to Alan using the clicker, continues towards the dam. He's able to muster up the strength to reach it, and when he enters the well-lit room, he is overwhelmed with happiness to find his daughter, Sarah, inside with Barry and Cynthia. Alan makes his way to Cauldron Lake, fighting through the last defenses the Dark Presence throws at him, including various Taken and a tornado of possessed objects. Once safe, Alan reaches a cliff above the lake and stands before the water with the clicker in hand. He then jumps into the lake, before waking up within another dream. In it, Alan finds himself before Alice, who tells him that everything he's gone through has simply been a nightmare. Alan refuses to accept this dream as reality, and searches for the clicker, finding it and turning on the lights. This awakens Alan within the dark place. Thomas Zane then appears before him, telling him to find his way to the cabin so he can fill it with light. A smiling doppelganger of Alan Wake then appears before him, and Zane introduces him as Mr. Scratch, who Zane states Alan's friends will meet while he is gone. Alan then traverses through the dark place, hearing the darkness speak in Alice's voice, as well as Barbara Yeager. Alan then hears echoes of the past when Thomas Zane wrote his love, Barbara Yeager, back into existence after she drowned in the lake. Zane quickly realized that the Barbara he brought back was different, however, and he was forced to cut out her heart, which he claimed was filled with darkness. 
Alan finds the cabin and enters it, finding the heartless specter of Barbara Yeager inside. Alan grabs her and places the clicker in the hole where her heart once was, and while the darkness states that it will find a new face to wear and someone else to dream them free. Alan turns on the clicker. A burst of light erupts through Jaeger, and she disappears. Alan then makes his way back upstairs, where he feels Alice's presence. He then sits down at the typewriter and begins to write the ending to Departure, knowing how to bring balance from Zane's mistake. We then flash back to Alan, jumping into the lake to save Alice. This time, however, time lapses, and Alice awakens underwater before she emerges from Cauldron Lake onto the pier. She searches for Alan, but finds him nowhere in sight, with Diver's Isle submerged once again. In Bright Falls, Deerfest occurs without a hitch, with Rose now holding Cynthia's lantern, while Agent Nightingale stands behind her, dressed in all black. Back at the typewriter, we see Alan once more at work, where he simply states, It's not a lake, it's an ocean, before Alice is heard telling him to wake up. Alan soon finds himself within the Dark Place's representation of Bright Falls. He enters the diner and relives the moments when he first arrived in town, although things are slightly distorted. Alan goes back to the bathroom, but inside he sees a message from Thomas Zane in the mirror, telling him to go no deeper. Zane gives him a flashlight and a gun, or rather representations of them, and states that he'll find a better point of contact to help him. Alan exits the bathroom to find that night has fallen, and the diner is now filled with TV sets showing a frantic version of himself writing the current events. Alan fights some Taken and leaves the diner, finding Zane's light outside. He follows, reaching a cabin where he finds a manuscript page. Unfortunately, Alan isn't able to read much from the page, as it just contains jumbled, dreamlike fragments. Words then begin to materialize in the room, including one that reads phone, which Alan shines his light on, transforming it into a cell phone. Suddenly, the phone rings, and Alan answers it to find Thomas Zane on the other end, who tells Alan to follow the signal to reach him. The GPS system on the phone begins to work inexplicably, and Alan begins to follow its directions. Eventually, Alan reaches the backyard of the town hall, finding it strung up with lamps, much like the well-lit room, but red instead. Wake gets another call from Zane, who tells him that he's going deeper, as the dark place is playing tricks on him. Knowing that all he can do is keep going, Alan continues to follow the signal. Continuing to live through twisted memories of his travels through Bright Falls, Alan eventually receives help from Thomas Zane in the form of a manuscript page. With it, the word friend appears, and when Alan burns the shadows off of it, a ghostly version of Barry appears. This version of Barry maintains the same snark as the real one, urging Alan to listen to Zane, as he's been in the dark place for ages and must know what he's talking about. Alan reaches the top of a hill and spots a sawmill in the distance, believing the signal to be leading him there. After more and more TVs of Alan frantically writing stranger and stranger obstacles in his own way, he finally reaches the sawmill. There, Alan finds memories of his life with Alice, which make him wonder what's happened to her. Alan soon finds himself inside a representation of his own home, where he finally meets Thomas Zane 
in his diving suit face to face. Zane tells Alan that the dark place is calmer where they are, but they still don't have much time. The poet then tells the writer that he's currently fighting himself, showing Alan a nearby TV where he sees himself once again. Zane states that Alan is currently causing everything as they speak. Alan doesn't believe that he can be in two places at once, but Zane persists, telling him that he is trapped inside nightmares of his own creation. Zane suddenly vanishes, and the TVs in the home begin to attack Alan. After he destroys them, he finds himself on a dock. Suddenly, static begins to envelop Wake, getting too loud for him to handle. He passes out and awakens inside of his room at Cauldron Lake Lodge, where he is met by a ghostly figure of Dr. Hartman. We then see Alan on the floor of the study inside of the cabin on Diver's Isle, with manuscript pages scattered around him. Frantically, Alan screams that there is no way out, but that he has to get out of where he is. Back inside the dark place, Alan watches as Dr. Hartman morphs into Barry, and he soon finds himself outside. He relives more twisted versions of his memories, and when Alan escapes the lodge, he spots Zane's light in the distance. As Alan goes towards it, however, he also finds a TV, and he again sees himself writing the story of his current reality. On the front lawn of the lodge, Alan relives the firework and rock music-filled events of the Anderson farm and defeats several Taken to get through the lodge. Back outside, Alan talks with Zane, who can finally reach him. Zane tells Alan that he must reach himself to wake himself up, leading Alan to realize that he must get to the cabin. Zane tells Alan that he won't be able to follow him to the cabin, but can help him get to a lighthouse as a safe haven beforehand. Alan traverses a treacherous path of floating objects created by his own words. Zane speaks with Alan during his journey, telling him that part of him is in control of the cabin, dreaming and insane, but the one he is speaking to is capable of rational thought and planning, and can regain control. Alan, realizing that there are technically two of him, asks if Mr. Scratch is also a part of him, but Zane confirms that he is not. Zane continues to help Alan reach the lighthouse, but his insane self turns it off. Alan then finds himself back inside Hartman's Lodge, where he sees himself speaking with Dr. Hartman, admitting that he should have listened to the doctor from the beginning. Alan is then shown a tape recorder, which he uses to see a message from Alice. This Alice is different, however, as she is completely bitter and heartless, expressing her hate towards Alan for his childish selfishness. Hartman and the vision of himself try to convince Alan to stay there, not to ruin Alice's life anymore, but he recognizes the attempt to trick him. Alan reaches Zane once again, who tells him he must fully reject the fantasies that he has constructed. Alan does so, and Zane disappears again, leaving a manuscript page in his wake. This page powers up the lighthouse, but also leaves behind a memory of Alice, telling Alan that she'll always love him. Now without Zane's assistance, Alan reaches the lighthouse. Climbing to the top, he emerges from a hatch to find himself just outside Diver's Isle. He watches a memory of him and Alice arriving for the first time, and he traverses the now twisted and distorted bridge. A taken version of Hartman attacks, as well as one of Barry, but Alan defeats them, 
as well as other taken and possessed objects, to finally reach and enter the cabin. Alan makes his way to the study and touches the face of his sleeping counterpart. Wake then opens his eyes, finding himself alone. Now able to think clearly again, he realizes that he has to use the time he has control wisely. He turns his attention to the typewriter and sits down to write a sequel to Departure. Alan types the title, Return, by Alan Wake on the page. Alan then simply states, My name is Alan Wake, and I'm a writer. Sometime after the events in Bright Falls, author Clay Stewart begins to have nightmares involving Alan Wake. Clay leaves his wife and children and assembles Nightingale's field notes on his investigation, his own interviews with various residents of Bright Falls, the pages of Alan Wake's manuscripts that were recovered, as well as various other materials in a book he entitles The Alan Wake Files. Additionally, Clay's own accounts reveal that during his time in Bright Falls working on the book, he believes he saw someone who looked like Alan Wake sometime after the author's disappearance. When Clay tried to speak with him, however, the man simply gave him a strange smile before seemingly vanishing. Barry Wheeler has taken on the old guards of Asgard as clients, and on a tour, he falls asleep inside a motel room where the TV is playing an episode of Night Springs. The story of Return is then written by Alan as an attempt to leave the dark place. The events of this story are written into existence as he does so, much like those of Departure. In return, Alan, a champion of light, is still trapped in the dark place, chasing the Herald of Darkness, Mr. Scratch, or his evil doppelganger. Mr. Scratch continuously eludes Alan, threatening that he'll soon have his hands on everything Alan loves. Alan is then engulfed in darkness, and soon finds himself in the town of Night Springs, Arizona. There, Alan deals with more Taken before he spots a motel with lights on in the distance. Alan escapes from more Taken that emerged from an oil derrick, orchestrated by his evil double, to reach the motel. At a garage in the motel, Alan meets Emma Sloan, a mechanic who recognizes him. Alan asks her for a typewritten page that belongs to him, and Emma tells him the page had something written on it about the oil derrick and a satellite. Emma gives Alan the page, and he instructs her to stay in the light. Alan then tells her that they've never met before, and the man she recognizes him is actually someone dangerous who looks just like him. On the page is a formula for rewriting reality, requiring three items, a valve, a battery, and a CD. Alan finds that the battery isn't charged, so he takes it to Emma, who agrees to charge it. Alan then uses the items at the oil derrick to prevent the darkness from pouring out from the ground. Once he does so, a rock hits a satellite in orbit, causing it to crash into the derrick and destroy it. Alan returns to the motel to find it overrun with Taken. Alan defeats them and finds Emma safe inside. He then asks her about the man who looks like him, Mr. Scratch, and she tells him that he had a party in one of the rooms, then once things got out of hand, he went to a diner where a fight broke out. Strangely, Emma has keys to the diner and hands them to Alan so he can go there and investigate. Alan goes to the diner where he finds a motel room key left behind from the scuffle. He takes it and returns to the motel, but, on his way, Emma is attacked by the darkness and killed. 
Alan uses the motel key to enter the room, finding the corpse of a man named Michael Farabee inside. His clothes bear the name of Mount Redtooth National Observatory, and Alan finds keys to it among his belongings. Alan takes them and makes his way to the observatory. Alan fights his way through various forces of the darkness before he reaches the main building. He presses a call button to request entry, but a woman on the other end, Dr. Rachel Meadows, refuses his entry, believing him to be a returning Mr. Scratch. Alan convinces her that he is a different man since the shadows attacked him, but not the previous man she saw, and she lets him inside. As Alan explores the facility, he sees a message from Mr. Scratch, recorded from his party at the motel where he killed Michael Farabee. Alan finds and speaks with Dr. Meadows, who explains that she is picking up some sort of strange signal which Mr. Scratch was interested in, but couldn't understand, sending him into a rage in which he broke their imaging array. Luckily, Meadows has a spare in her car, and Alan agrees to go fetch it. Alan retrieves it, and the darkness begins to send spiders at him as he returns. Once back inside the observatory, Alan installs the new imaging array, and Meadows attempts to use it. Unfortunately, it malfunctions due to the coolant system, forcing Alan to open the secondary coolant flow valves manually. Alan then rushes out and does so, predictably fighting several Taken and other foes along the way. Alan returns to Meadows, who operates the telescope. Taken enter the building and attack, forcing Alan to fight them off as she works. After they're all taken care of, Alan returns to Meadows and she reveals that the signal is now coming in loud and clear, and while she can't understand it, it seems to be interacting with the observatory's system specifically as if it was made for it. Alan then takes a printout of the signal, finding it to be a map created by himself, or at least the version of himself writing this particular story. Alan follows the map to reach a drive-in theater. There, Alan finds a guard station where he meets a woman who is obviously taken by the darkness, although she comes onto him, thinking him to be Mr. Scratch yet again. Alan makes his way to turn the power back on at the drive-in, but on his way he is finally met face-to-face -face with Mr. Scratch, who taunts Alan and unleashes a powerful onslaught of Taken to attack. Alan is able to fight them off, and successfully turns on the power, enlightening the guard station. Alan returns and formally meets the woman, Serena Valdivia, who has snapped out of her darkness-infused trance. She tells Alan that Mr. Scratch was trying to do something with the projector in order to prevent the sun from ever coming up again. Alan decides that he needs to go there, and Serena gives him the access code, but warns him that Mr. Scratch claimed he was going to set up some security. Alan gets to the projector room, finding and defeating Mr. Scratch's security system of Taken and Poltergeist fountains. Alan enters the room and follows the instructions left on the printout from the signal. However, as soon as he does, darkness fills the room, and Mr. Scratch yells to Alan, telling the writer that his efforts are futile, and soon he will take everything Alan loves, including his wife. When Alan tells Mr. Scratch to show himself, the doppelganger complies, but shortly after, Alan is again knocked out. When Alan awakens, he finds that time has somehow looped, and he is once again nearby the motel in Night Springs. Alan finds Emma back at the motel garage, confirming the time loop, but Emma reveals that she remembers all of the prior events. 
Knowing it would help Alan, she retrieved most of the items he needed before, leaving him to retrieve the remaining, the battery. He does so and returns to Emma, who charges it once again. After returning to the oil derrick and causing the rock to crash into the satellite once again, Alan escapes the ensuing destruction. Luckily, this time he knows to return to Emma, and he does so to retrieve the key to the motel room Mr. Scratch held the party in. This time, Emma admits that she did go to the party, but left when things got out of hand, later learning that Mr. Scratch had wound up killing a girl who attended as well. Alan goes to look and implores Emma to stay in the light this time so she doesn't meet the same fate. However, as soon as he leaves the garage, its doors close and the darkness still envelops Emma, not allowing her to change her dreadful fate. Alan gets the key from the motel room and returns to the observatory. This time, Alan retrieves the imaging array from Dr. Meadows' car before even entering. After retrieving it and going to the call box, Meadow recognizes Alan and remembers the last loop as well, allowing him in immediately. Alan installs the array, but before Meadows activates the telescope, Alan goes to make sure that he can stop the Taken from sabotaging the coolant system in the first place. After doing so, Meadows receives the signal and Alan fights through several adversaries to return to her. Alan gets the printout of the signal, which has more information, but is still incomplete. He then takes it to the drive-in once again. At the drive-in, Alan uses his prior knowledge to get the power on and uses the access code right away. Despite Mr. Scratch showing up again and throwing his defenses at Alan, Wake is able to reach the projector room once again to follow the instructions from the signal. Unfortunately, the same fate awaits Wake, as the room fills with darkness again, and Mr. Scratch taunts him, claiming that he's wasting his time. Alan is knocked out yet again, and another time loop occurs. With the latest loop, Alan has the most knowledge he's had yet, but also the most powerful opposition. At the hotel, Emma helps him to get the keys, and he helps finally save her life. At the observatory, Dr. Meadows has the array in place, allowing Alan to simply take care of the coolant and fight off infected, retrieving the full signal printout for their efforts. Finally, at the drive-in once again, Alan turns on the power, deals with Mr. Scratch and his reinforcements, and returns to the projector room. He then follows the signal printout instructions one final time. In doing so, Alan learns that the film he's been trying to show was one his wife, Alice, had made about him as a memorial once he was presumed dead. The light of the projector casts through the film and burns through Mr. Scratch, who stands atop a bus in the drive-in. Mr. Scratch attempts to hold on, but the light eventually destroys him completely as he fades away. The film then shows Alice and Alan reuniting, where they finally hold each other and share a kiss. These events unfortunately seemingly only exist inside this episode of Night Springs, which then wraps up. After the credits roll, Barry Wheeler awakens inside of his motel room and calls out for Alan, thinking he had heard him. In October of 2019, Jessie Faden finds her way to the Federal Bureau of Control's headquarters in New York City, known as the Oldest House. The Oldest House is a place of power, 
or a location that has been affected by paranatural forces. Jessie, led to the oldest house by Polaris, the entity that telepathically communicates with her, hopes to find Dylan, the brother separated from her 17 years prior. While Jessie doesn't find many people in the oldest house, she does find its janitor, Ati, who presumes Jessie is there about a job, janitor's assistant. He points her to an elevator to get to the interview, and she follows his directions. Emerging from the elevator, Jessie finds the office of FBC director Zachariah Trench. When she enters, however, she finds Trench dead, seemingly of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Polaris instructs Jessie to pick up the murder weapon, and when she does so, she is contacted by the board, another paranatural entity broadcasting from a black pyramid in another dimension called the Astral Plane. The board informed Jessie that only the director can wield the service weapon, and so her application is currently being processed. Jessie is then transported to the astral plane, where she follows the board's instructions to learn how to use the service weapon, which is an object of power connected to the astral plane. Afterwards, the board appoint her as the new director, and she sees a vision of Trench knowing that an attack was coming and vowing to keep the Bureau safe. When Jesse leaves the director's office, she notices FBC agents infected by some kind of paranatural force, which she calls the Hiss. The Hiss tries to enter her head, but Polaris stops it. Jesse is then forced to fight the Hiss-infected FBC agents before she receives another vision of Trench, telling her to find the hotline to establish a secure line of communication. Jesse cleanses a control point of the Hiss, finding a safe room nearby. She speaks on its intercom and talks with a woman named Emily Pope on the other end. Jesse learns that Pope is the assistant to the FBC's head of research, Dr. Casper Darling. When Jesse introduces herself, those inside the safe room exit, and Emily meets her face to face. Emily tells Jesse that the Hiss has somehow managed to infiltrate the building without any warning whatsoever, leading to a full-blown lockdown of the facility. Emily then has Jesse try to cleanse a Hiss corrupted agent, and while she tries, with help from Polaris, she finds that it simply rips the agent apart. Jesse decides to ask Emily about the incident in Ordinary when she was a child, and asks about the FBC's involvement in the event keeping her brother's abduction close to the vest for the time being. Emily admits that she's heard mentions of an altered world event in Ordinary, and while she could try to dig up some files, the classified information would be better accessed by Dr. Darling. Unfortunately, he has gone missing. Emily believes that Darling knew something was coming, as he developed wearable devices called Hedron Resonance Amplifiers, or HRAs, which have protected several agents, including herself, from the hiss thus far. Jesse asks about the hotline Trench mentioned in her vision, and Emily explains that it is another object of power in the form of a telephone that serves as a direct line of communication between the director and the board. Additionally, it allows communication between other planes of existence as well. Emily then tells Jesse to go to the communications department to find it. 
Emily warns Jesse, however, that the head of communications, Alberto Tomasi, refused to wear an HRA, so he may now be a threat. On her way, Jesse cleanses another object of power, giving her the ability to telekinetically throw objects. Continuing on, she comes across the now his corrupted Tomasi and is forced to fight him. After the battle, Tomasi escapes, leaving Jesse to find the hotline object of power. Jesse finds the hotline in a chamber separated from her by a strange void. Before her, she sees a pull chain for a light switch, and she tugs on it three times, transporting her inside the Ocean View Motel and Casino, a place of power that connects various dimensions. Jesse finds another light switch inside and pulls it to find herself before the hotline, a strange telephone that is currently ringing. Jesse answers the hotline and she hears the deceased Trench on the other end. Trench speaks of his management team, who know the secrets of the Bureau, consisting of Head of Research Dr. Casper Darling, Head of Communications Alberto Tomasi, Head of Security Lynn Salvador, and Head of Operations Helen Marshall. Jesse returns to Emily, and the pair determine that they should find Helen Marshall, who has also gone missing after going to the research sector to secure the HRA production. Emily informs Jesse that she'll have to head to the maintenance sector first so she can perform a directorial override to lift the lockdown of the facility, allowing her access to the other sectors. Jesse goes to the maintenance sector and finds Ati who agrees to help her reach the override as long as she does some work as his assistant. In his own way, Ati asks Jesse to fix the coolant pumps and power generators before the power plant explodes. On her way, Jesse meets Security Chief Simon Arish, who was assigned to watch over the power plant. Arish tells Jesse that Darling seemed to know the hiss was coming and provided them with the HRAs as he prepared one massive one all while tearing off his clothes for some reason. Jesse repairs the plant's coolant pumps and energy converters, and she is finally able to use the directorial override to lift the internal lockdown. Jesse finally decides to tell Emily the truth about her search for her younger brother Dylan, as well as her connection with Polaris. Emily reveals that she's looked into the ordinary altered world event, learning that Trench and Darling were both involved, and sectioned off a large area of the containment sector for it, although Emily reveals she found no record about the slide projector. Jessie then continues her search for Helen Marshall by heading to the research sector. On her way, Jessie finds another object of power and receives the ability to seize the Hiss-controlled agents, giving her control over them instead. She is eventually able to speak with Marshall via an intercom, and the head of operations calls an elevator for her to come speak in person. Jessie finally meets Marshall face-to-face, -face, and Marshall asks Jessie to assist her rangers with securing the HRAs from Darling's lab to help the FBC survive the Hiss attack. Polaris then leads Jessie towards Darling's lab, and after she cleans out the hiss on her way, she finds the machine he built to create the HRAs. When she tries to activate it, Marshall arrives with her rangers and tasks Jessie with replacing some terminals to get the machine running again. After doing so and activating the machine, the specimen inside, a black rock prism, shatters. 
Marshall then sends Jesse down to the maintenance sector to find Dr. Darling's Black Rock Processing Lab so she can retrieve another prism. Before Jesse leaves, however, she asks Marshall what she knows about Dylan Faden. Marshall, stressing that lives are currently at stake, agrees to talk about it after Jesse repairs the machine. Jesse returns to Arish and asks for help getting into Darling's Black Rock lab to prevent the Hiss from taking more survivors. Arish tells her the lab is nearby, but currently occupied by a giant Hiss monster. Furthermore, they can't ask for help from security since head of security Lynn Salvador went missing shortly before the lockdown in the containment sector. After defeating the Hiss monster, Jesse is able to investigate Dr. Darling's Black Rock lab. There, she finds a security card that will allow her to reach the Black Rock Quarry, the source of the Black Rock. The quarry is one of what Dr. Darling calls thresholds, or connections between dimensions, and can be reached through the maintenance sector. Jesse enters the quarry, and after Polaris leads her, she uses explosives to excavate a Black Rock prism. She takes it back to Marshall, who intends to use it to restart HRA production. Marshall, following through with her agreement, finally tells Jesse the truth about her brother. Dylan, as it turns out, is currently in the oldest house. After the ordinary AWE, Dylan was brought in by the FBC and was found to have very special abilities. He was being groomed to become their next director, codenamed Prime Candidate 6, or P6. His powers corrupted him, however, and he wound up killing others, leading to his containment within the Panopticon, a location within the containment sector designated for objects of power and other items touched by paranatural forces during altered world events. Armed with her brother's location, Jesse immediately heads to search for him, while Marshall warns her that Dylan is dangerous and to not let him out of his confinement. Jesse reaches the entrance to the Panopticon and meets its supervisor, Frederick Langston. She asks where Dylan is kept, and Langston tells her that Dr. Darling wanted him somewhere secure and isolated, so he's in a maximum security cell on the upper level. Langston warns Jesse that there's an object of power loose inside, which is causing havoc. Head of security Lynn Salvador was last seen trying to contain it before he went missing. Jesse has Langston open the door and enters the Panopticon. Jesse finds the object of power, a television, which warps its containment area. Jesse fights through the hiss corrupted Lin Salvador along with his team and is finally able to cleanse the object of power, giving her the ability to levitate. With the object of power matter attended to, Jesse continues to search for her brother. She reaches the massive maximum security containment cell on the fifth floor of the Panopticon, but is surprised to find it empty. Just then, she receives a call from Emily Pope, who informs her that Dylan just walked in and joined them in the executive sector. Dylan, apparently, has decided to give himself up, telling Emily and the other survivors that he's affected by the hiss, but differently than all of the others. Emily decides to isolate him while Jesse rushes back. Jesse returns to Emily, who tells her that Dylan is indeed affected by the hiss, but differently than any other manifestation they've ever seen. 
Marshall had set up an HRA-warded cage to contain him, and Jesse makes her way there to finally reunite with her brother. Jesse enters the room housing the cage and finally comes face-to-face with her younger brother for the first time in nearly two decades. Dylan is levitating inside of the cage, rambling to himself. Jesse asks him if he knows who she is, and he simply replies that she is Dylan Faden's sister. She asks if he knows who he is, and he replies that he is not Dylan, as Trench and Darling made sure of that. Dylan then refers to himself only as P6, stating that he's better now that the hiss has helped him. As Jesse calls on Polaris for help, Dylan seemingly reacts to it, expressing extreme anger and resentment over the entity not helping him escape from Trench for all of these years. Dylan reveals that the Bureau brought the slide projector object of power from Ordinary with him when they took him in, and proceeded to use it. In doing so, they opened a door to the Hiss, which is what allowed it to enter the oldest house. Dylan then states that he let the Hiss into him to allow him to get rid of Polaris, warning Jesse that the Entity and the Bureau are simply using her as a puppet. Now knowing the source of the Hiss, Jesse decides her best bet to get rid of it would be to find the slide projector and shut it down. Dylan gives her the keycard to the prime candidate program in the containment sector and tells her to go find the truth for herself. Jesse then leaves her brother and makes her way to the containment sector, where she enters the prime candidate program. Inside the area, Jesse finds the FBC's research on P6, including Darling's insistence to continue working with Dylan despite his use of excessive force killing a member of his team. Surprisingly, however, Jesse finds research on another prime candidate, P7, who happened to be none other than herself. The Bureau had evidently followed and spied on Jesse for years, simply observing her. Jesse then finds the area where the FBC have stored all of their research on the Ordinary Altered World event. After finding a scale model of the entire town, Jesse discovers that the FBC transported the town's landfill, where she and Dylan found the slide projector, and are storing it in the facility. Jesse then finds Darling's lab, where she watches a video log in which the doctor states that he'll be setting up a new department, Dimensional Research, to focus solely on the slide projector. Jesse now knows that she must head to the research sector to find where Darling had moved the slide projector. When Jesse reaches the research sector, however, she finds herself inside the ashtray maze, a labyrinth she quickly discovers she cannot navigate. Hoping Ati can help, she goes to his office, but finds it empty. She searches for information on his whereabouts, eventually leading her back to the Ocean View Motel. She traverses through it, finding herself transported to the restricted area of the maintenance sector. After following through Ati's visions, she finds the janitor, and he rewards her with a gift, his cassette player. Ati tells her that it will get her through the maze, and he vanishes shortly after. Jesse returns to the ashtray maze and listens to the cassette. As the song plays, she is able to find her way through the labyrinth, fighting his controlled agents along the way. As the hotel-like environment begins to shift and abstractly transform around her, Jesse navigates her way towards dimensional research. 
In side-dimensional research, Jesse searches for, and soon finds, the slide projector's containment room. Unfortunately, the pedestal that once housed it is now empty, leaving Jesse to continue to look for where Dr. Darling took it. She soon watches another video log from the doctor in which he investigates the slide projector, along with the one remaining slide, marked 36, that Jesse had not burned in ordinary. Darling's team used the projector to open a portal to Slidescape 36 and conducted several expeditions, finding an unpredictable resonance from an unknown source. Trench, however, claimed to have heard something else, something that made his ears bleed. Watching more logs from Darling, Jesse learns that he eventually found the source of the resonance in Slidescape 36, an entity of considerable mass that he named Hedron due to its shape. Shortly after, a chamber opens before Jesse, revealing Hedron in containment. Upon seeing the entity, Jesse believes it to be Polaris's physical form, recognizing it from her initial explorations with the slide projector back in Ordinary. Jesse then watches Darling's final message, in which the unclothed man states that he had been fully exposed to the Hedron Resonance, changing him and giving him visions. In them, Darling learned that within Slidescape 36, Hedron stopped the spread of another source of resonance, the one that Trench was exposed to. Darling expresses fear that this new, terrifying resonance will spread through Trench, despite the work he put into creating the Hedron resonance amplifiers to hopefully spread Hedron's ability to block it. Jesse examines the Hedron chamber, finding the path blocked by the large HRA that Darling had finished before his disappearance. After removing it, Jesse enters the chamber and finally views Hedron unobscured. Suddenly, the hiss enters the chamber behind her and infects the various siphons surrounding Hedron. Jesse attempts to cleanse them before they can destroy the entity, but she is unfortunately too late. Jesse is left powerless to watch Hedron crumble, and she soon finds that she is unable to hear Polaris. Without Polaris's protection, the hiss then infects her mind. This brings us to the end of the story of Control at least until Jessie fights off the hiss inside of her own mind. Finding herself within a dream in which she is now an employee for the FBC, Jessie completes mundane tasks until she reaches Director Trench's office to deliver his mail. Suddenly, she finds herself in the Director's chair until Dylan appears with the service weapon and holds it to her head. When he pulls the trigger, Jessie finds herself back as the new employee, stuck in a loop. After completing the tasks and delivering the director's mail once again, she hears Trench speak of an invasion coming to the oldest house. Trench then explains how he plans to fight it by taking the slide projector and one of the burnt slides to the nostalgia department before turning it on to allow the hiss to enter and fix the problem. Trapped in another iteration of the loop, Jesse gets to the director's office and takes the surface weapon. She then sees herself put the weapon to Trench's head before pulling the trigger and taking his place at his desk. Jesse then picks up the hotline and speaks with Dr. Darling, who leaves her with a classified message for the director. Hedron was not the source of the resonance, but rather 
a catalyst. Jesse's nose begins to bleed, and she heads to Darling's office to reveal the endgame. In Darling's office, Jesse finds a light switch pull chain and activates it three times to find herself back within the Ocean View Motel, or at least her own brain's version of it. There, she finds another version of herself engulfed by Polaris. Polaris grows brighter and brighter until Jesse awakens. Now back and without the hiss infecting her, Jesse realizes that Polaris still exists within her. While she's unsure whether Hedron placed Polaris inside of her or simply taught her how to trigger the entity, she now knows that she's the new catalyst for its resonance. Jesse learns that while she was dreaming, Dylan had escaped confinement and turned the projector on to enter the astral plane alongside the hiss in an attempt to infect the board. Jesse is able to reach the projector and turn it off, entering the astral plane herself to stop her brother. Jesse fights through the invading hiss and finally reaches Dylan just below the Black Pyramid. Jesse then grabs her brother, and with Polaris's help, she is finally able to cleanse Dylan of the hiss. The result of this ordeal leaves Dylan in a coma, one which Jesse doesn't know if he'll ever recover from. The portal from the slide projector closes, but traces of the hiss still remain inside the oldest house, forcing the lockdown to continue. Jesse works with her new management team to find a solution, but she realizes it will be a long road ahead of her and Polaris. She then finally accepts her position as director of the Federal Bureau of Control. Sometime later, Jesse receives a call from the board on the hotline. The board informs her that there is a problem in the foundation, a place near where Ati gave her the cassette player, which the janitor uses as his vacation spot. Jesse discovers the entrance to the foundation in the maintenance sector and enters it. Inside the crystalline caverns of the foundation, Jesse begins to receive visions of Helen Marshall through the hotline, making her fear the worst. Further inside, Jesse notices that the astral plane is starting to cut into her dimension and the oldest house. When Jesse reaches a large area called the Crossroads, where she finds a large broken pillar, the board reveals this pillar to be a paranatural object called the Nail, which Jesse is instructed to repair. If the Nail is not repaired, the astral plane will continue to bleed into the foundation, eventually destroying the oldest house and everyone inside it. To assist her, the board bestows upon her a new ability, forcing her to choose one of two options. Jesse begins to search for four keys the board spoke of in order to allow the nail to rebuild itself. After finding the first, Jesse receives visions from an extra-dimensional entity called the former, but its speech is indiscernible. After finding another key, the former attempts to speak with Jessie again. She soon finds herself back to where the board gave her the choice of new ability. While the board forbids her from taking the other ability, claiming the former is trying to mislead her, Jessie defiantly takes it anyways. After being chastised by the board for her poor performance within the astral plane, Jessie soon finds herself isolated from their reprimanding. She then sees the former before her, and it speaks directly with her. Jesse discerns that the former was once a member of the board, but was ousted after it was blamed for something. 
As the astral bleed gets worse and worse, Jesse continues to search for the remaining keys to repair the nail. The board eventually apologized to her for their outburst, deciding to let her keep both abilities so long as she ceases contact with the former. Jesse repairs the penultimate key, and the board uncharacteristically shows their appreciation. When Jesse reaches and repairs the final key, she's shocked when a tremor strikes and the astral plane begins to collapse around her. She narrowly escapes back to the foundation and rushes back to the crossroads where she finds Emily Pope with a team near the nail. Emily asks Jesse what she's done to cause the tremors. Jesse expresses her confusion and Emily confirms that the nail has been repaired, stopping the astral bleed. Emily also states that she has determined that the nail is actually a piece of the astral plane, or a vessel containing it, and is vibrating at a frequency incompatible with their own dimensions. This spatial friction, if allowed to continue, will end up destroying both planes of existence. Jesse decides to climb down below ground to reach the base of the nail to investigate the source of the tremors. There, she is shocked to find Helen Marshall still alive, but recently infected by the hiss. Marshall, as it turned out, was the one who broke the nail, attempting to destroy it in order to detach the oldest house from the astral plane entirely, suppressing the board's control over the bureau and preventing the hiss from spreading through it. The board caught wind of her attempts and attacked her, destroying her HRA and allowing the hiss to reach her. Jesse is regretfully forced to kill Marshall, finding the nail to be infected afterwards. She cleanses the nail, stopping the tremors. The board congratulates her on her efforts, while expressing that they hope she changes her attitude moving forward. Jesse plays along, knowing that she can't entirely trust the board, but pretending to be on their good side will likely prove to be advantageous. At some later point, Jesse goes to the investigation sector of the oldest house after receiving visions through the hotline from a man at a typewriter beckoning her there. When Jesse reaches the sector, she finds it abandoned after something caused it to be closed off. She finds a pull chain and uses it to transport to the Ocean View Motel. There, the writer speaks with Jesse once again, and while he doesn't remember much, he does remember his name. He then introduces himself as none other than the famed but missing writer, Alan Wake. Jesse then sees a vision where Alan is met by a doppelganger of himself, who introduces himself as Thomas Zane. Alan questions this as he remembers the poet looking differently the last time he saw him. Zane then states that the diver Alan met was just a role he played in an old film he made. This Zane then tells Alan that they're working on something together now, an artistic collaboration. Alan then looks down at a TV nearby, playing an episode of Night Springs, which depicts Dr. Darling. Zane returns with a drink for Alan, reminding him that they're close to escaping the dark place, as Alan has been writing and found a new way that will work. Alan then remembers that his double, Mr. Scratch, is still out there, but Zane brushes it off, simply stating that he's dealing with him. This frustrates Alan, who throws his glass on the ground, ending Jesse's vision. Jesse returns to the investigation sector, finding the dark presence invading it. 
As she proceeds, she continues to hear Alan through the hotline, writing what happened to Dr. Emil Hartman after the events at Bright Falls. Hartman had called in the FBC, who investigated the Altered World event that occurred with Alan in Bright Falls. Afterwards, he dove into Cauldron Lake himself, hoping to control the Dark Presence. He emerged as a different being, and the FBC took him in. When the hiss invaded, however, it transformed Hartman into yet another thing, the third thing. Alan then writes that Hartman crashes out of the darkness to attack Jesse. Shortly thereafter, the lights go out and Alan's writings become reality as the monster that was Hartman appears. Jesse is then forced to reactivate the lights, driving the third thing away and into the shadows. Continuing through the investigation sector, Jesse speaks via intercom with Frederick Langston, who fills Jesse in about Hartman and instructs her to kill him before he can escape into the rest of the bureau. Jesse then searches two locations for the third thing, areas housing the artifacts seized from two altered world events, one called Fra Morrow and another called the Eagle Limited. In both areas, Jesse turns on all of the lights and weakens the creature, causing him to run off to one final area, that which contains the Bureau's investigation of the Bright Falls AWE. Jesse soon finds herself back inside the Ocean View Motel, where she once again hears Alan talking, this time about having a plan to escape, although he has forgotten it. She then sees another vision of Alan, thinking to himself that he is coming and that he has to get out soon. Wake then begins to write his escape, involving a hero working for a government agency fighting an alien force, a very familiar-sounding scenario. Back in the Bright Falls AWE area, Jesse sees another replica, like the one of Ordinary. The third thing attacks once again, and Jesse turns on the power and the lights in the area. Finally cornered, Jesse is able to fight the being and eventually kill it, bringing an end to the hiss and darkness controlled Dr. Emil Hartman. After the coast is clear, Langston calls Jesse, informing her of an altered world event alert going off in Bright Falls, Washington. Strangely, the dates are off, as the alert is seemingly for an event a couple of years in the future. We then see Alan Wake once more, realizing that if the alarm is true, then the events causing the alarm must be true as well. He then states that it's happening again, a return, before simply saying, you've been warned. And this brings us to the year 2023, where FBI profiler Saga Anderson arrives in Bright Falls with another agent, Alex Casey, who mysteriously shares a name with the protagonist of Alan Wake's novels. The pair begin to investigate a series of strange murders occurring in the area, while Alan Wake is seemingly still trying to escape his nightmare prison of darkness. It is there that we reach the beginning of Alan Wake 2, where we'll finally pick up with the story of the lost writer and delve even deeper into the Remedy-connected universe. 
Hey everybody, thanks for watching this one. It wound up being way bigger than expected, but I love this universe and really wanted to give it the treatment it deserves before we re-enter it with my most anticipated sequel in years. Huge thanks goes out to all of the folks who support this channel through YouTube memberships or Patreon subscriptions, whose names are on screen now. If you like what I do on this channel and would care to support my work, please do consider joining by clicking the links in the description. I really, really appreciate it. Also, a big thanks goes to my buddy Papa Post, who helped with the voiceover on this behemoth. As mentioned in the intro, we do a podcast together called Bucket Bites that you can check out right here on YouTube with the link in the description and check out his personal channel for his streaming content. Thanks again, guys. See you later.